Today's episode is brought to you by AI Driven Maker. Attention makers, creatives, and crafters of all types. Wondering how you can leverage AI to help you grow your craft enterprise? Check out the AI Driven Maker, your go-to AI resource library. Usually $27, now half price with the code CRAFTAI. Unleash your creativity, enhance your projects. Visit AIDrivenMakers.com backslash CRAFTAI. Thank you so much, AI Driven Maker. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 247 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about yarn and about media with my guest, Dana Williams Johnson. Dana is a knitter newbie crocheter, and college professor. She holds a PhD in communications, culture, and media studies, and researches issues with online communities, feminism, and the impacts and use of social media by minority women. She also writes about her love of all things yarn on her blog, Yards of Happiness. Dana Williams-Johnson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You've also welcomed my small dog, Jellybean. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Jellybean is a total cutie. So always welcome for sure. Um, So I'm very excited to have you and to talk about what you do. Um, I'd love to start with where you grew up and and what you were like as a kid. Um, So it's easiest to describe. uh, I went to elementary school in Durham, North Carolina. I went to middle school in Andover, Massachusetts. And I went to high school in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, so I am an East Coast girl, um, but of my, I'm the youngest of three. And so of the three siblings, I'm the one that has moved the most. Uh, and I don't see that as a bad thing. And um, it helps me kind of get used to change and meeting new people and adapting in different environments. But from North Carolina to Massachusetts to Williamsburg, three very different uh communities, states, uh, different types of people. Uh, but the kind of running thread for me always as a kid was I was always creative. Um, I was very addicted to paper, like any kind of craft or thing that you could do with paper. Uh, for a long time, I wanted to like design clothes, but I would make clothes out of paper, like literally would be like, I'm just going to staple this together and turn it into a skirt. <laughs> and Um, I painted for a really long time and it's funny because as a kid and going through like school I realized like oh I don't want you to actually grade me on my art like I don't I don't want to major in this in college and do all this because for me art is very subjective and I would have teachers that were always like oh I want you to not be so soft with your artwork or so and I'm like but that's me that's who I am. I don't do hard lines. I don't do um, this, the kind of art that you're asking for. Um, so I've always had some element of craft, but typically it was based around drawing, painting, 
um, how I could kind of put things together via paper. Um, and I've always been a very visual and colorful person. And fortunately, lived in a house and grew up in an environment where my parents encouraged that. And, you know, my dad let me paint my room crazy colors, even though my mom was like, no. <laughs> and my dad was like, but it's her room. And I want her to feel like she can express herself and be that kind of creative person. And my parents are great about like framing artwork when I was a kid and paintings and things that I did when I was little. Um, and there's even a, a painting now in my house. My dad, I took painting classes in college as my electives and my dad found my portfolio when I graduated. It was still in their house and he dug through the portfolio and picked out what he liked and had it framed. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's mine now. <laughs> I, I paid for the framing. It's mine. Um, so yeah, I've always kind of been creative, but knitting didn't come to me until later in life. Okay. Um, and um, were your parents themselves creative? Did they do creative things around the house or for work? So no. And and very, my mom, both of my parents at some point were educators. My dad was also a college professor. Um, I didn't find out really until later in life that my dad like wrote for a literary magazine in college and that he was a writer. He always told wonderful and elaborate stories and we had always said you should write a kid's book and he he didn't before he passed but um he never channeled kind of the creativity in that way um his mother also was a seamstress and sewed and taught him how to sew and so um my dad knew how to sew and would do some of the basic things and and was always the you know all the women in my family are short so he hems all the pants and did all the stuff and so when I learned how to sew, he was actually the person who helped me. And then um, I started sewing more in my late 20s. And then he was like, oh, well, I want a new sewing machine. I want to I want to be on trend with you. But it, growing up, I didn't see it that way. But um, they always nurtured it and cultivated it. And were like, Dana's different in that way. Um, my mom will tell you she is not creative at all. But um I think she is just in different ways. She's an adult educator. So GEDs, teaching people how to read English as a second language is her specialty. Um, and I think you have to be creative in the classroom, especially with older students in order to really connect and get with them. And my mom's an amazing teacher and people have always loved her and that kind of impact. So I think we think of creativity in different ways and we show it in different ways. I'm just the one that's been the most expressive in my family. Okay. So you had mentioned you didn't want to go to art school. So uh, when you went to college, what were you thinking you wanted to study? What were you thinking you wanted to be? Well, initially, when I went to college, I said I would go for education and I would be an art teacher. And my mom was like, you don't want to be a teacher. You don't. Because a, a lot of the teachers that have had some of the biggest impacts on me were my art teachers. I still remember my art teacher from elementary school, Miss Self, who was just, I thought, the most wildly wonderful and creative woman ever and encouraged that and just made me feel like I could be an artist or I was an artist because I picked up a paintbrush. Um, and so the other thing that I've always been good at is I've always had a good voice. I'm a great reader. So I actually went to undergrad for broadcast journalism. Um, 
that my bachelor's in journalism, but it was emphasis on broadcasting. And then I did uh, a graphic design as my minor. And I kind of pivoted halfway through college because I was like, I don't want to be on television on air. Um, and I really loved magazines, though, and had always loved publications and again, paper. And so for a while, I thought, oh, I'm going to go into the magazine industry. And then um, the Internet hit. <laughs> and I was in college and I was like, you know what? I think the Internet is really going to change our world and the publishing industry in a completely different way. And I know everybody thought this 20 year old kid was crazy saying that. Um, and so I stopped pursuing that industry because I was like, I think this is going to be different. Um, and so it took me a really long time to really like I graduated from college. I job various jobs. I've worked in uh, publishing sales, uh, hired administrator. Um, there's always been a thread that has brought me like a connection to college. So I've always worked at universities for a really long time. I've always had students. Um, but I just never figured out the thing. And when I went to get a master's degree, I ended up creating a blog for a project for one of my classes. It blew up in popularity and I got to do some amazing things right at the cusp of social media hitting. And um, so I got to work with some major brands. I got sent to Fashion Week and did all these things. And so I kind of pivoted and used those to get jobs that dealt with my web skills, design, and social media. Being a person saying like, hey, I'm in it right at the cusp as all this is starting. Uh, and then that ended up leading me into being an adjunct professor um, and realizing that where I belong was not in an elementary school as an art teacher, but I love college age students and being a part of that journey for them. And so that's really kind of how I took all of these experiences and things that I did. And as an adjunct, I was like, gosh, like I'm happiest in my day when I leave work and I go teach. <laughs> so how do I figure out how to do this all the time? And then that eventually ended up in them offering me a full-time position so that I could also go back to school full-time too. So the blog that you started in 2008 was called The Art of Accessories. And this was like a, a school project, as you mentioned, for a class that you were taking. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that blog. Um, you you said you got to go to Fashion Week and work with a lot of different brands. And, and this blog was going for five full years. So what was the art of accessories and and what was your life like while you were while you were working on it? Um my life was in flux actually a lot. I remember I got laid off like halfway through, like in year two or three, right when it was booming. Um, and I was kind of taking, and that was the opportunity where I got to really shift in jobs and I got laid off from a job that I hated anyway. Um, and I told people all the time, I was great at getting jobs, but they weren't jobs that I loved. And I'm like, I'm a good worker. I've got lots of skills. I'm smart. I'm creative. Um, but I never had found a job that I love. So the art of accessories for me was a great extension because I got to talk about the stuff that I do love. I've always been a girly girl, incredibly feminine. You know, I was a kid who played in my mom's makeup and she let me, um, who wanted to learn how to do nails when I was like eight. <laughs> okay. So 
I was always doing my nails. I was fascinated with makeup, um, how makeup transforms you even in terms of an art form, because to me, it really is another version of art and way of expressing yourself. I think everything I do is about how do I creatively express myself? Um, and even for a while, I was like, well, maybe I should become a makeup artist or maybe I should focus on that as I'm kind of pivoting and thinking about what I want to do. Um, so that's really what the art of accessories was for me. One of the things that I love was fun jewelry, makeup. Um, and I would blend in a little bit of technology too, which gave some opportunities because I love technology and media. Um, and so it really was just an extension of me. It was, these are my favorite things. I was that person. If you have a girlfriend where you're like, oh, I really want to get into makeup or I don't know what to do. Everybody would go, ask Dana. <laughs> and I'm that girlfriend that you could take to the counter and the makeup artist would be like, you should come and work here. And I'm like, I know, I think about this all the time. <laughs> um, you know, it really was like, oh, like she knows her stuff. And I'd be like, no, no, no. So we're going to go to this counter and get your foundation and your basics. This counter, if you want some color, and we're going to add some stuff for us. This counter, like, and that was really... Um, I was Sephora before Sephora existed. Like, <laughs> I could tell you all the places to go, the brands and all the things. And so I just put it in a blog to say like, here's how you get to be creative and feel beautiful about yourself. Maybe you're a newbie to makeup. Maybe you just want to try something for when you get fancy. Maybe like I will do it all. Um, I will like today I have on absolutely no makeup. Um, but you could turn around and be like, Dana, we are doing this tonight. And I'd be like, let me put on a full set of lashes and a full face for you. Um, so it was that extension of that part of me. And I got to write, which I've always been a writer and express myself, but it was a way for me to really write and kind of figure out how to tailor what I write to an audience, how to really craft that to an audience. Um, brands liked me because they felt that I was authentic because I would tell you like, I don't like this brand's lip gloss, but their mascara is my favorite. And even working with one brand and, you know, getting prototypes and saying, you really should make a blue mascara because it pops for people with brown eyes to them then saying, we listen to you and we're going to send you the late, you know, it was my parents and my husband at the time were amazed because, um, I would go on vacation or go somewhere. And if it was a place where there was a brand, like we were on vacation in San Francisco and Bear Essentials was based out of there. And they invited me to come have lunch while I was in town and to show. And, you know, it was one of those things where they're like, really? Like, I'm like, yeah, I got to know all the PR girls and, mm -hmm. you know, they, they go between brands. So if they left one company, they'd still take their roster to another and be like, hey, I'm not there, but I'm here and I've got stuff for you. Um, my life felt fun because every day a new package and things are, would arrive. I would let my girlfriends kind of shop the makeup closet. Like, I'm never going to wear all this in a lifetime. Um, but I knew I didn't want to do it for a full-time job. <laughs> it's a lot of hustling to really make money off of a blog. It's actually yeah. a project that I translate into my undergrad class where I make my students create blogs and have to create original content and wow. a social media plan and all this to understand how much hard work it is. Because yeah. I think people see social media and all of this and are like, it, it, it's easy. And I'm like, if it looks easy, there's a lot of work being put into that that you don't realize. There's a lot that goes into that on the back end. Um, and so I got to a point where 
the market got really saturated with bloggers, especially beauty bloggers. Um, mm-hmm. I had switched careers. I was kind of pivoting. And I just, I didn't feel like doing it anymore. I didn't have to do it. I did it because I enjoyed doing it. And so I stepped away from that space, but said, don't, I'm not saying goodbye forever. I'm just saying right now I'm closing out this chapter in my life because I think it's reached its course. And at the same time, um, I started to learn how to knit. And I kind of like shared a little bit with that audience. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm getting older, I'm changing, I'm deeper into my 30s, different things are priorities for me. Um, I got, and it was funny because I was like, I got to a place in my makeup where I was like, I don't actually want to experiment anymore because I know what I like. Mm-hmm. And, and I've kind of, you know, what used to be an insane makeup bathroom is very contained. I'm very, really committed to specific things. I know what I like. I know what I want. Um, and so I moved on. and. And then as I started teaching and working at this other job, I and I created the assignment for my students to create blogs, I said, well, I should probably get back into blogging a little bit just to make sure that I know what my students are using. So they have questions about WordPress and stuff like that, not thinking it was going to become something else for me. And then that was how the Yards, the Yards of Happiness was born. And... And then that kind of took off too. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, the AI Driven Maker. Hi, my name is Stephanie DeSonier and I am the owner of Business by Design. Okay, tell me a little bit about Business by Design. Yeah, so uh, Business by Design is a sales and production consulting business. So I work with makers and micro manufacturers on the back end of their business to help them grow and scale to and then through their um, first six figures. Oh, wow, that's great. So, what kind of businesses are your ideal clients? My ideal clients are businesses that are looking to hit that first 50,000 and then that first 100,000 um, who are struggling to understand how to get everything working together on the back end. I don't do marketing, but I do a lot of how can we make your process faster, cheaper, and better for your customers and for you. Okay. And when you say the back end, do you mean like actually like production or do you mean like um, website, that kind of stuff? I, I'm talking primarily production. Uh, we I do a little bit of work on website audits and optimization, but it is mostly on the production side. Okay, great. Um, and I hear that you're sort of plunging down into um, talking with makers about AI. So tell us about that. Yeah, my newest project is I'm working with makers to understand how AI can help them planning out their business. Everything out there right now is focused on having it right social media posts or right emails. But I actually teach makers how to use it to create a financial forecast for their business and then help plan out their production. How much are they going to have to make of each product each month in order to hit those revenue goals? Wow, that's a super cool use of AI. I'd love to learn about that. That's great. So tell us, um, Stephanie, a little bit about where we can um, go to learn more and potentially um, begin to work with you. Yeah, if you go to my website, businessbydesign.com, that's design with a Z, there's a link right on there to learn more about my AI workshops. There's also links to check out all of my free videos for makers and micro manufacturers who are trying to figure out how to grow their sales. Fabulous. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And now back to my conversation with Dana. 
so the art of accessories still exists. Mm-hmm. I um, the archive of it I, because people will still say, oh, I want to, it exists. It's still there. But it looks like, I don't know, when I clicked on it, it looked like it was newly updated or something. I don't know. I, I, I wonder have, whether maybe you know somebody what? else is using that URL at this time and doing Somebody something. has that URL, but my, okay. the art of accessories that WordPress. I see. Okay. Okay. All right. So there's two different ones is basically the the reality. I let the domain name go. Go and somebody else took it. Okay. That's mine is the art of accessories.wordpress.com. That archive will always live, but it's free and I don't have to pay for all of that. Right. I was like, I'll let it go. Somebody else can. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. That's interesting. It's always interesting to know what to do with a blog that you don't want anymore, but want the archives to stay. So that's a, a, a way to do that. So, um, so you were talking about learning to knit. Your father was diagnosed with cancer and it sounds like that, that process of, of sort of having to go through that with him was one of the impetuses for you to, to begin knitting. Um, so how did you learn? I, I bought a coupon. Um, and oh, so the, yeah. Groupon. The, the story is funny because I said to my mom, because I was working in this new job and it had different stressors in a different way. And I'd always wanted to learn how to knit, but I didn't really know anybody who did. And I, I mentioned to my mom, I think I'm going to take knitting lessons. And she was like, you don't need another hobby. You don't need to learn another thing. She's like, you don't need to spend money on another thing. Like, no. And then a week later, she sends me a text like, can you knit me this hat? And I'm like, you literally just said, (laughs) like, you literally just discouraged me from learning this. And this week you're like, can you knit this hat for me? And I'm like, I don't know why you thought in a week that, okay. So fortunately, I did not listen to my mom. And I saw a Groupon for a yarn shop that actually doesn't exist in D.C. anymore um, for knitting lessons. And I said, well, I'll buy the Groupon because it'll be a discounted price. And if if I don't take to it, if I don't pick it up, it's fine. I didn't spend that much money on it. Um, so I took lessons at a local yarn shop um, nice. like over the course of a month or so. And she, I realize now, like looking into my first instructor, like really threw us in there. Because my, my 101 course, after you learn the basics, she was teaching us how to cable. <laughs> and I'm like, wait. Um, I am a very type A personality though. And I was insanely intense and really rigid when I learned how to knit. And I asked her like, are you supposed to feel like you're going to vomit? And she was like, no, (laughs) she's like, no. And you really need to calm down. Like you're intense. And I was like, I am an intense person. And she's like, you have to understand that making the mistakes is how you learn. And like, that's how you grow. And like, you're not going to be perfect on the first try. And it kind of took that for me to be like, oh, okay, let me ease up a little bit and not expect perfection right now. And that kind of let me get over myself a little bit. (laughs) And, and so, um, so once you started, I mean, you are an incredibly avid knitter now. I mean, you knit a lot. And I know that there was one year when you knit something like, I don't know, 27 sweaters or something like that, which is like an insane I, I amount. That. I did you? In 2022 and I knit 28. 
28. That's like an incredible, I mean, because I don't know how many hours you can estimate on average it takes to knit a sweater. So I will say this, the year in at 27, most of those sweaters were like worsted weight sweaters. And there were a couple of chunky, there might've been a couple of DK, but the bulk of those were worsted weight. Um, the year in at 28, it was, it varied, but I had been, um, I've been really sick in 2021 and my knitting slowed considerably. And I was, my girlfriends will tell you, I was very frustrated because I just, I wasn't, I wasn't where I was in 2021. It was very much a rebuilding year. And so I stopped counting it all and looking at it. And in 2022, it was one of my girlfriends who in June was like, I feel like your knitting mojo came back. How many sweaters have you knit so far? And it was like halfway through the year. I was like, oh, I'm on number 15. And she was like, yeah, you're back. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm back. It came back. So um, my dad, my dad dying was, he was in the hospital a lot. Um, and then eventually at home hospice care. And it was a lot of his like hospital visits and stays or um, things like that, where I would knit kind of just by his bedside if he wasn't in a position of being really talkative or things like that and they would give the nurses something to talk to me about and then when he passed um when everyone came to my mother's house I was knitting and I remember when we put him in hospice at home I went when I went to my house I went and I ordered like this at the time for me really expensive yarn that I'd been like coveting and picked a pattern and I was like I'm gonna knit this to kind of get through this because I know we're coming to the end and I'm a very for me knitting tactile I love a soft yarn I'm not a sheepy wool person I'm a give me the soft fluffiest stuff you can get and so um what I found was when he passed and I'm knitting and working on this sweater it gave people something else to talk to me about instead mm-hmm. of the, oh, how are you right. doing? When obviously you feel like crap. Um, and it gave you the, the oh, what are you working on? Tell me more about this. How'd you make right. the pattern? Um, and I realized how much it really had kind of been this solace and peace for me during a really hard period. And I said, you know what? I'm got my kids doing this. I need to do this. This is what I will write about. And I also decided to start a blog about knitting because at the time I didn't feel like there were black women that I was really seeing. There were like Gigi, um, Gigi of Gigi made it gay of Gigi made it was probably the only black woman that I saw. And so I was like, well, there have to be other black knitters out there. So if I show my face um, in a very public way, maybe more of them will come out of the woodworks too. And it's kind of just become this beautiful project for me. And that um, ties into your PhD thesis, which um, your dissertation title I have here was called Stitches of Progress, Knitting Consciousness and the Changing Power of Black Women's Work and Leisure. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your research and um, what you learned through that process of um, putting together this dissertation. So I'm glad that you had my dissertation title written down because I never remember. <laughs> it 
<laughs> really long. And I never come up with the titles. My advisor was the one that kind of crapped it. So I'm always like, it's stitches of progress. That's it. Um, so second, it's funny because I intentionally went into my PhD and was like, I'm not going to talk about knitting and social media. Either of those things. I was like, nope, we're going to explore and do all these other things. And uh, I ended up having two advisors for my dissertation because one ended up leaving the university. But my first advisor, Dr. Natalie Hopkinson, um, was wonderful because my second year in the program, I actually know my first year in the program, I remember going to her office to talk about something. And she started asking me questions and things about me. And I had had knitting with me while I was waiting. And we ended up talking about knitting. And she was like, this is your thing. Hmm. And I think that you need to really dig into this and think about how you make research around this. I was like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> and then the next year I was in a class um, with her about women and uh, gender and women and culture. And I ended up writing a paper that was about representation. Um, and it was about knitting magazine covers. Mm. And it was a really simple paper that looked at the research was I went on Ravelry and I pulled every single image of Vogue knitting magazine. Um, I think the initial paper was only about Vogue, about Vogue knitting magazine through time because it's the oldest. It's been around for a really long time. And. I did it so that we could talk about, it was, it was essentially a visual content analysis of what do these covers say to you? What do these covers tell you? Who the average knitter is? Who How long has Vogue are? Knitting Magazine been? Do you remember? Like a, what, what decade? It, like it, the 40s. Okay. So, yeah. So a really long time. So you had, had a lot, lot of covers. covers. Yeah. So in the end for my dissertation, I had over 300 covers between Vogue, Interweave Knits, and Pom Pom Quarterly. And so for this first iteration of the paper and the Michelle Obama cover had come out and that was one of the things where I was like, okay, let's talk about this. Uh, and I could have done two papers because I could have done a paper on the comments alone under the Michelle Obama Instagram post. I tend to do research where I look at the comment section more and I have a little bot where I can siphon off all the comments to analyze them. Um, but for just this, I did the visuals. And I looked at it and I said, you know, when we look at what Vogue is telling you, Vogue is kind of, there's been some other research, um, another study uh, from a professor at Georgetown who had done this research and had sat through a knitting group and did interviews with all the members of the group to talk about who knitters were and how that image is shifting. So a lot of what we see in the public is that when people talk about who a knitter is, we often think of an older white woman, perhaps a granny. Um, People always talk about itchy yarn and ill-fitting sweaters. And there was a push to change this idea that knitters were actually more hipsters. But the underlying thing that I felt that people were never addressing is that we're always looking at them as being white. Um, when historically, actually, people of all races knit. And I think the earliest evidence of knitting of knit and pearl stitches was actually found in Egypt. And so it was this idea that we've kind of erased, um, specifically, I'm looking at because I'm Black, Black women from the narrative of knitting. 
And so when I looked at all of these Vogue covers, um, the first thing I just saw was like, oh, they don't see us. They don't include us. The first Black woman didn't appear in Vogue until like the midnight, on the cover of Vogue until the mid-90s. And then another one didn't show up for almost 15 years. Wow. And it really wasn't in the, the, the last 10 years that we've seen more women of color. And I even pointed out like there was one Asian woman in all the covers. Um, most recently, there's been a woman that looks like she could be Native American, but you're not 100% sure. Um, and then you had like two covers where race was ambiguous. No covers where you would say a woman uh, was of Latino descent. And so it was really this idea of what are these covers telling you and who are you marketing to and who do you think your audience is? And then um, I wrote that initial paper and presented it at a conference and my professor was like, don't publish this. This is a chapter of your dissertation. And so I was like, damn it, I guess I'm not <laughs> knitting. Um, and so my dissertation is actually a three-part study. I broadened it. Um, it isn't just Vogue. I look at Vogue, Knitting Magazine, uh, Interweave Knits, and Pom Pom Magazine. And I picked those three because they're three that are fairly popular that have been in circulation although pom-pom is the younger that mm -hmm. has had some kind of impact and was um i looked at examined all their covers and i went a little bit deeper and also looking at when you do show black women what does the black woman that you're showing look like and looking at what types of blackness are considered acceptable um when we think about beauty in addition to that i did qualitative interviews with black women who knit and post images of their knitting on Instagram. So I mm. had, off the top of my head, I want to say it was about 15 women that I sat down with and had hour-long interviews via Zoom. And then I went through all of their interviews, coded all of that stuff, looked at, pulled out the themes. And then I also went, the third part of the study was then to look at the women's Instagrams and what they posted during this month-long period. And then I also compared that to the Instagram accounts of Vogue Knitting, Interweave Knits, and Pom Pom. Um, and you would find things like I did just a 30-day window. Uh, and one of the ones, Interweave Knits, um, only showed white women on their Instagram feed for a 30-day period. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where if you are a minority, um, if you are someone who is just learning how to knit or you're attempting to attract this audience, you're not going to attract me because I can't see myself anywhere within any of your posts or any of your content. You aren't marketing to me. You're not including me in that community. Um, and a lot of even what the women that I interviewed were telling me were things like, well, I buy pom-pom now because pom-pom had the most diversity of images. Yeah. Um, and, and that from being age, um, showing a woman like over 50 with gray hair on their covers to diversity of body shapes, plus size women, um, and then ethnicity and seeing and seeing black women of varying skin tones. What you typically see in magazines and publications, especially in the knitting community, is a black woman that's going to have a skin tone like mine. I'm about a medium brown skin tone. Um, you're going to see softer straight hair or with a softer curl, never in its natural state. Um, one of the things that really shocked me was when one of the women I interviewed was like, when have you ever seen a woman with dreadlocks on one of these covers? Because I dreadlocked my hair. 
And I was really like, wait, I, I didn't even think about it in terms of that. Um, and so really it is an analysis of what the industry is telling us and then how these Black women say, I don't care what the industry says. I use Instagram as a way to show myself and to show people that, yes, Black women do knit um, and that we should be celebrated and we are just as valid as everyone else. Um, and so for me, it was a very beautiful and affirmative project to have these interviews with these women and talk with them and I did it all over my winter break and it was it was great it made I was remember telling my my second advisor Dr. Coleman like I didn't know what to expect when I did these interviews but it was the boost that I needed and kind of some of the joy that I felt in that and talking with them and saying like yeah I get that we get ignored that's fine but here's what you're gonna do you're not gonna ignore all this chocolate on Instagram like you can't ignore me when I come up in the hashtag and so that was really kind of one of those interesting little dynamics that came out of that and so eventually I hope it'll get uh, part of my research will get published like an academic journal and then I would like to also publish this as a book but also do um, an additional chapter that's like an autoethnography of myself and my experience within the knitting community. And can you talk a little bit about comments? Because you said you have a bot that can gather all the comments and that you often look at the comments almost sort of more so than the post that you could have done a whole paper on the comments under the Michelle Obama cover. Um, so what are you what are you seeing in comments and what are you learning from comments? Because there's always people who say never read the comments, right? That's like something you hear about the internet. Um, but then there's also fascination with reading the comments. So what do you think about the comments? So I've actually done a study um, that I'm submitting to a journal about I've done one that was based on comments on a really controversial YouTube post within the knitting community from a yarn dyer. Um, and it's really about how we can spread misinformation via the comment section and also how we mm -hmm. can use comment sections to continuously inflame issues. Um, yes. But the other part that I see within comments and that I've done research on and written about is inherently within the knitting community specifically when I've, and I've been like, I'm gonna look at knitters and crocheters of varying races um, what we find in the comment section is that if you are white and you make any kind of political statement, you are applauded in the craft community. If you are black, you are often told this is not the place for these kinds of comments or knitting is not political. Um, and I have also experienced that. So I've written a column for uh, Modern Daily Knitting. Uh, I, I took a break to do my dissertation and all that, but I would get the comments of this isn't the place for this. And my my comment back whenever people comment that to me is, if not here, where? And if not right now, when? Because if it is up to you, we will never address this issue. Um, and what I also found in my research is that knitting has always been inherently political. And so whenever people are like, Oh, knitting isn't the place for politics. Actually, it is. And historically, um, you know, from knitting for troops and using knitting and spinning as ways to make political statements is a part of American history. So to then 
tell a black woman like when she makes just a comment about the state of race, but is also a knitter. You know, people will have said to me, I just come to you for the knitting and your dog pictures. I didn't come for this. Didn't go. <laughs> um, because you're going to get all of me in these spaces. And so a lot of what I find in the comments is that it is race based. It is the moment we see a black woman that says something, especially in the knitting community. And I have friends who sew and quote them and they're like, it's worse than sewing communities is that we take it to this place where, no, 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 we need to silence you because we don't want to have this conversation. Um, and it goes back to when you think about representation and who we think the average knitter is and, and who we feel like is a community for, um, which then ties into my research with feminism and that feminism and feminist movements have inherently been about white women and what white women want and not necessarily women as a whole. You know, when people were celebrating uh, whatever it was, the whatever anniversary it was for the women's right to vote with the suffragette mm -hmm. movement, people would get upset with me because I was like, no, no, no. This is the anniversary of when white women right. got the opportunity to vote. Not all women. Mm -hmm. And it was that, oh, Dana, didn't, I'm telling you the truth. And so we need to think about the fact that maybe your grandma could could vote mine couldn't and and we we are kind of missing that point and then it's the comments of everything isn't about race but it is if you actually want to break things down and look at it and it's not that we created these structures so me pointing that out then becomes this point of contention when we look at whiteness as the norm and the standard then yeah it's going to rub you the wrong way when i point those things out but that's part of my job now, especially as an academic and a researcher, is to make these points and to let people know, like, when we talk about these things, it's okay. It's okay to feel bad about something. It's okay to feel uncomfortable in a situation as long as we can talk about it and address it in a really cordial way. So I'm really good at when people are like, oh, this isn't the place. Feel free to tell me a place and time that you would like. But since this is my platform, I'm going to say that this is the correct place to do it. Um, so the comment sections. And there's a whole thing, too, about how Internet companies want users to moderate for them so they don't have to hold responsibilities. And then users say, don't feed the trolls. Don't read the comments. And that then just stokes the flames. So it's this constant cycle of no one taking accountability or no one being held accountable for what they're saying and what they're posting in online spaces. So that's that's some of that problem. That's some of the stuff that I look at in media. So a lot of what I do in research is is the read through the crap and the, the yuck of the online spaces. Um, but somebody has to, because if everybody's ignoring it, you you realize there's a lot that's happening out here and that is what's amplifying some of the divide that we see in the country. And you wrote one of the posts that you wrote for Modern Daily Knitting um, in June 2020. It was called See Me, Not Just What I Knit. And it's a beautiful post. It certainly seems to have struck with a lot of people because there are 803 comments. Talk about comments. I think that might be the most comments on a blog post that I've ever seen. <laughs> so, um, so that post really, really hit people, hit with people. And I told Ann and Kay to leave all the comments. I was like, don't delete anything. Um, because if somebody says something nasty, I want there to be record of that. 
Um, I'm very much a don't delete it. And other people would pipe up or say something or I would go in and ask questions. And from that post, they changed the name because it had been Mason Dixon Knitting. They changed it to Modern Daily Knitting based on what I wrote in other people's commentary. And when I wrote it and sent it in, they called me, which they never do. Kay called me like within an hour of submitting my post, which never happened. Um, and she was like, we had already been thinking about changing the name or like, but after reading this, I feel like we have to. And I was like, you don't have to do it for me. And I'd even when I said it, I was like, you don't have to post this if you don't want to. I know this isn't like my normal column, but this is what I feel right now. And she was like, no, I want to share this. And I think this is the last kind of push to get us there um and in a time when people like were posting performative black boxes on their social media and all that i felt like one of the reasons why i still work with mdk and ann and k is because they actually took action and said no there is something that we can do that we can make a change and that clearly if we've done something that has made people feel a certain way then we want to be a part of positive change and they knew, they said, we know we will lose some readers. And we know, and you can see in the 800 some of my comments, there are some people who are like, this is horrible and da 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 And they were like, and we're okay with that because right. this aligns with who we are and what we want. And so for me, that was like, that's a relationship that I will continue to have and support and be with them because of how they supported me and how they showed their solidarity. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of your expression of fashion and color now, um, because you were very much enmeshed in it when you were doing the art of accessories. And now um, you still, you know, express that clear love of color in the things that you knit for yourself for your dogs also <laughs> I noticed too in your glasses you wear you have a lot of really beautiful I love glasses and right. I notice in different photos of you while doing some research for this interview that you have a lot of beautiful glasses frames too so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of your color inspiration and, and how you express some of that sort of artistic aesthetic now? So it's funny when I started teaching, I was like, I'm going to tone things down for teaching so that I'm not a distraction. <laughs> and I hated it. <laughs> and I found that when I was my true self and expressed myself in color, my students were like, oh, Professor, I love this rainbow sweater. This is amazing. Um. And so I find that when I don't express myself through use of color, I'm sad. Like it's, my home is colorful. Um, my hair right now is colorful. <laughs> Much to my mother's disappointment, my hair is currently teal. And I was like, mom, I've always wanted it. At least I waited until after graduation to dye my hair. So I wouldn't ruin graduation photos for you. Um, but I have always been, I mean, I know my favorite color since I was three, since I knew green has always been my favorite color. And I've always loved color. It's just one of those things that I think is a part of me. And so, you know, I there was a long period of time where I didn't even own black pants or a black, you know, everybody's like, you have a little black dress in your closet. And I was like, 
Oh, I have a little green dress. That's the dress that I put on that makes me happy. Um, and I needed to come to something and they were like, oh, you have to wear black pants. And I was like, what? I don't, I don't currently own black pants, which felt like such an odd thing to everyone else. And I was like, I don't, own, but my dad was a person who really took care and how he dressed and his suits and work. My father didn't own a plain white shirt. Wow. And so for him, he was like, no, I don't own a plain white shirt. And he had beautiful patterns and colors and mm -hmm. was always sharp. So it's kind of in that same vein for me. Um, I, because I wear glasses all the time and I express myself through my eyewear and I'm like, well, if I got to wear glasses every day, then I might as well have some really fun ones. My latest iteration this year, they they're a little bit more toned down, but fun shapes um, and things that are can be bold or stick out. Um, the glasses I'm wearing today have my initials on the side of them, which my students will notice in class. And they're like, are your initials on your side of your glasses? And I'm like, how are you all even seeing this? Um, but I realized, especially because I work for a historically Black university and because I am in front of young Black students, that whether I wanted to be or not, I am an, especially a role model for young Black women. And they get to see in me and how I dress and how I express myself. It's okay to be creative. It's okay mm -hmm. to do what you want to do and to be who you are. Because I want that for my students. And my classrooms are very much spaces where I'm like, tell me your pronouns. Make sure that I know how to pronounce your name correctly. Because I hate when people say your name incorrectly and just let it go. I'm My classroom is a space where I want you to correct me so that I get it right. Uh, and I want you to feel like when you walk into my classroom that you can be yourself and be who you are because I'm giving you myself. Um, mm -hmm. My office is colorful. I don't have a window, so I have art all over the walls. Uh, I grew up in a house with art all over the walls. And so that to me is it's another way to express yourself, who you are, what you are about, what you love. And it lets people kind of get a little bit of a window into who I am in terms of the artwork and things that I express at work and in my home. And so my creative and colorful expression in terms of my clothes and all that are just that extra part of it. You know, I can go to the Gap and buy a white sweater. So why am I going to knit one when I can make one that is the most beautiful shade of like mint green that no one else will ever be able to put this combination together and think of these things and so I think that's the beauty of knitting is that I get to use it as a creative outlet and expression to show who I am or even like I'm knitting a sweater right now and I realize that knitting it with a color palette it's beautiful yarn I love it but it wasn't for me and I'm one of those people where I'll start realizing halfway through like oh I'm not knitting this for me I'm knitting this to my best friend Jessica um, because I'm like, these are Jessica's colors. This is her. I know on her, this will be beautiful. You know, I love my mother in a cobalt blue. And so I knit her for Christmas, the Lento sweater and this gorgeous sapphire blue yarn from Periwinkle Sheet mohair and her fingering base that I was like, my mother, every time she wears this, people are like, this sweater is stunning on you. Because I thought of her, I thought of the color that I think she looks the most amazing in. And I found that yarn and the perfect pattern to kind of marry that. So for me, it really is another level of expression and being able to say, 
nobody else is ever going to have this exact thing and do it this exact way. So why not fully kind of embrace who I am in that creative space? It's one of the reasons why I love knitting. And you recently, and we're going to get to your recommendations in a moment, but you recently started a sub stack so that you could write a little bit more about knitting and about other things beyond knitting. Um, so um, so tell us the name of that and, and what people can expect to, to read there. Um, so I named it Kaleidoscope of Thought because I often think about so many things at once. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of how my brain works where you're I continuously am shifting the things that I read and that I'm thinking about almost like a kaleidoscope. And a kaleidoscope to me can be these fragmented pieces that come together to create this beautiful picture. And that's really what I thought about when I thought about writing beyond just knitting, um, that it really are things that I think about. So the first thing that I wrote about my girlfriends made me go see the Barbie movie because I had no interest in seeing the Barbie movie. Um, but I compared it to uh, in it, Margot Robbie is considered stereotypical Barbie. And I said, stereotypical Barbie is stereotypical feminism. And here's how they relate and why. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I see and and why I didn't necessarily, like, it was fine. It was a movie on a Sunday afternoon with my girlfriend, like, a, a movie went to go get ice cream. I was great. It was great to spend time with my girlfriend. I laughed. But I didn't leave the Barbie movie. Like, a lot of women have said they left where they were crying in the movie or these fears and and these tears and just this emotion and I was like and here's why here's exactly why I didn't feel that way and I'm not saying you can't go and enjoy the Barbie movie obviously it's a blockbuster people are going and people are going to see it multiple times but maybe you want to understand it from a different perspective Mm -hmm. maybe you want to think about it through a different lens and so a lot of the things that I, I write about, that I research about, it's getting people to see things through a different lens and understand how the world works from a different perspective. Because I'm a minority population. Um, and I often feel like Black women are usually rooting for everyone so that we can uplift everyone. And so if I got to point that out sometimes, I'm going to use my platform and my voice in different spaces where I can in order for people to get that. And I wanted to get to your recommendations. The first one I love, which is rest. Um, Rest is so important. So um, talk a little bit about rest in your life. So I am a person who was always doing a million and one things and always teaching and writing here and doing this and doing that. And in 2021, um, I was sidelined, had a massive pulmonary embolism and my whole life changed. And I realized I couldn't do everything and I shouldn't do everything. Um, And so this year when I graduated, I had three months of summer break where I wasn't writing, doing research or doing anything. Um, And my husband was like, you need to rest. He said, you aren't just decompressing from graduation you're decompressing from especially the last two years. And I need you to take this time because you need to kind of reset. And for me, rest is this not feeling guilty about not doing anything. Um, because sometimes you need that in order to, sorry, my dogs are barking. That's okay. <laughs> sometimes you need that in order to, in order to be able to be your best creative self. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and then you've also been liking cotton yarn, including Lion Brands 24-7 cotton in the cooler months. Yeah. So I'm a woman of a certain age. <laughs> I'm going to be 45 this month. Um, and I'm realizing, especially in my teaching in my classroom, I can't be in all wool all the time. All the windows, the sun, I will die. Um, also, climate change is real. And so I tell people to embrace cotton and cotton blend yarns. It can be an all seasons knit and you have something that you can wear all the time and cherish all the time. Um, and so that's been one of my favorite things in Lion Brand is I think it's a more accessible line of yarn in terms of cost and that anyone can actually use it and buy it and not feel as if you're breaking the bank to make a project. Don't get me wrong. I love my indie dads, but I also love affordable yarn. <laughs> and then you wanted to also recommend Bertie Parker Designs six-in-one ruler wristlet. Okay. So if you are an inner crafter person who is forever losing your tape measure like I am, or your um, your needle gauge, this is the thing for you. Um, it's a little leather wrist strap with an accurate ruler on it, needle gauge on it, like, and it gives you even uh, how to do Kitchener stitch. So like, I love this little tool. I want to own a million of them to put on every single project bag. Um, but I have a couple, so I just put them on the project bags that I'm, are my active whips. But I think it's probably one of my favorite little buys that I found this spring. And every time I tell someone, She's like, I keep selling out. And then I realized like you mentioned it. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, because I think these are amazing. And then everyone else tells everyone else like, this is one of the best tools to add to your project bag. I'm like, you're welcome, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> well, Dana, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by the AI Driven Maker. Tension makers, creatives, and crafters of all types. Wondering how you can leverage AI to help you grow your craft enterprise? Check out the AI Driven Maker, your go-to AI resource library. Usually $27, now half price with the code CRAFTAI. Unleash your creativity, enhance your projects. Visit AIDrivenMakers.com backslash craft AI. Thank you so much, AI Driven Maker. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.